Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's Daily Politics Podcast. I'm Isabel Hardman and this is the Sunday Roundup. The comedian Russell Brand has been accused of rape, sexual assault and emotional abuse this week by five alleged victims. Brand's case is just the latest in a litany of scandals that have rocked the world of entertainment. Koonsberg asked Cleverly if he thought there were wider questions the industry must answer. Cleverly agreed and suggested that abuse was particularly challenging in places where there are acute differentials in power. I really want to ask you about the scandal around Russell Brand mm. and this alleged appalling behaviour. Now, some years ago, actually, you, you described him as a vacuous narcissist. Um, but I wonder, in a wider sense, do you think, from what we know now, that there are wider questions that the entertainment industry mu- must answer? So I think, I, I think there are some real challenges where you have these very, very acute differentials in power, whether that be in the entertainment industry, whether that be in, in, in politics, and we see this in the commercial world as well. And I think we have to be particularly careful when we listen to the voices of the people who are relatively powerless, um, because we, I think, collectively have missed opportunities to do the right thing and intervene much, much earlier. And we've got to, we've got to be better at so this. Do you think there are questions for the industry? Sadly, I think there are. OK, Foreign Secretary, thank you very much thank indeed. You. After devastating floods hit Libyan city Derna, Foreign Secretary James Cleverly said that the UK was doing what it could to help, but pointed out that the lack of an effective government in the area meant providing aid was extremely difficult. Laura Koonsberg asked him if the UK had a particular responsibility to help, given its role in Libya's political past. She also asked him if cuts to the UK's foreign aid budget have had negative consequences for those in need of aid. Cleverly admitted that budget cuts always have an impact, but claimed the foreign aid budget must always reflect the state of the UK's economy and that the country is still one of the world's biggest aid donors. Let's talk then about the UK's role. You say the UK is often called on, and that is Mm. certainly the case. But actually, your department, under your leadership, has cut the amount that's being spent on aid. What do you think the consequence of that is? Because if you look at the numbers, in 2019, we spent £15 billion a year on foreign aid. Now it is £12 billion in 2022. So we've got to recognise that our... Uh, overseas, uh, sorry, uh, official development assistance, our, our aid budget, in your shorthand, is basically defined by the scale of our economy. And our economy, like every other country in the world, mm-hmm. was very significantly hit by COVID. And we've got to respond to that. That said, we are still one of the largest aid donors in the world. But that's not my question. The aid budget has gone down. Is there a consequence to that? Well, you can never you can never reduce budgets uh, without uh, any consequences at all. What we have done is we have made sure the money that we spend leverages in other international money. We uh, are driving innovation in things like the uh, the World Bank and other international financial institutions. We are making sure that we maximise the effectiveness of our development budget. Relations between the UK and China has been, once again, a topic of debate recently after a parliamentary researcher was arrested on accusations of espionage. James cleverly recently made a visit to Beijing, but he repeatedly refused to answer Koonsberg when she asked him if he raised that recent case of the arrest with Chinese officials. He also would not tell Trevor Phillips whether he knew about the arrest before travelling. He did say, however, that direct relations were essential 
and that suggestions we should disengage from China were not credible. You visited China just a couple of weeks ago, and days later we find that a researcher working in Parliament who is linked in various ways to senior Conservative MPs was arrested in March, six months ago, on suspicion of spying for China. Uh, did you know about that arrest before you visited Beijing? Well, uh, as you know, uh, Trevor, we, we don't discuss intelligence matters. We do not discuss No, but it's a simple, a straightforward. It, as a parliamentarian, did you know? As I say, we don't discuss intelligence or security matters. But Good. the broad point... But, but the guy was arrested. That's not an intelligence question. Everybody, presumably, would have known about that, including you. Yeah, as I say, we don't discuss... Uh, the, the UK government... Uh, by long-standing convention, doesn't discuss intelligence or security matters. The point being that uh, China is a country with which we have to engage. And one of the things that I think it's important people understand is that... But, is before, that before you go on, well, I, I think viewers would be a bit puzzled that the arrest of somebody by the police... Uh, unless you're saying that somehow MI, uh, the, the intelligence services were in involved in that arrest, the arrest of somebody by the police for potential criminal activity is an intelligence matter. I mean, everybody in the Metropolitan Police will know about this. It's not an intelligence matter, is it? Well, what you're asking about I'm is... just asking if you knew the guy has been arrested. So the point that, uh, the point that I made is that because of the nature of the arrest, he was the charges on uh, which... Uh, sorry, on, on the suspicions on which he was arrested... Of course, there are uh, uh, understandable questions. People are uh, understandably uh, curious about... Sorry to press you on it. I'm no, not asking you to comment on, on the charges. I'm just, simply, I'm just simply asking, before you went to Beijing, did you know that this man had been arrested? And as I said, because of the nature of what he was arrested for, I am not going to discuss what we knew when... Uh, because that does drift into that area of, of, of work that we do not discuss. Oh, how do you knew or you didn't? <laughs> For the point, I'm not discussing it. <laughs> this week, Keir Starmer claimed that people smugglers should be in the same category as terrorists and dealt with accordingly. Trevor Phillips tested the seriousness of those comments, asking him if he would use the powers the government has when it comes to terrorists and detain smugglers without charge. Starmer avoided answering this question directly, but said measures to deal with people smuggling gangs would be more effective if they used the kind of international intelligence sharing found in counter-terrorism operations. Strikingly, in what you said this week about migration, you said that you would treat people smugglers as though they were terrorists. Uh, let me test this out with you. Would you, for example, treat people smugglers the way we do terrorists and detain them without charge for 28 days? What I meant by that um, is that we need to put people smugglers, those that are uh, involved in this vile trade, in the same category as terrorists. And I went, obviously, to The Hague to discuss this with um, police units, Europol, those that do joint operations uh, across a number of different countries. And what I know from my own experience, Trevor, I was obviously Director of Public Prosecutions between 2008 and 2013. I had staff in The Hague working on these joint operations. And when it came to counter-terrorism, what we were able to do very effectively was to share intelligence in real time, 
to agree between the lead countries where the investigation would take place, where we would smash the, in that case, terrorist gangs and bring them to justice. And I believe that if we put international organised immigration crime into that same bracket, we could run the same operation. I'll give you okay, one small but, example. But we know that we, but we they, know that the boats that are being used at the moment to cross the channel are being effectively made to order. We know they're being stored in Europe and then brought to the north coast of yep. France. It must be possible, if we get the right operation in place, to smash that operation. And that's All what right, I was discussing that, uh, that, when I was that, over there. And that's what I mean by putting them in the same category as terrorists. Well, that's, that's clear up to a point. But uh, for two decades, one of the outstanding points about the way we deal with terrorism is that we have changed the law in relation to terrorism. And if I can just come back to you, would you, for example, treat people smugglers legally in the same way that we treat terrorists and detain them without charge for 28 days? Look, I don't think it's the detention powers that are an issue here, Trevor. What I was talking about, the operation. There are other okay. features of terrorist provisions that I would use. Just, just bear me out on this, because we've had serious crime prevention orders for a long time in place in relation to terrorism and other serious uh, offending. And that allows a court to impose restrictions of movement, to chase money and freeze money of those involved in organised crime. Those orders have never been used to deal with those involved in the vile trade of putting people into the water to cross the channel. And I want them to be used in that way. Labour also hopes to negotiate a migrant deal with the EU. Laura Koonsberg asked Pat McFadden if the UK might have to accept a certain number of asylum seekers as part of the deal, and if Labour would set a limit on that number. McFadden claimed that the deal would not involve specific numbers and would be focused on issues like family reunions among asylum seekers. My question this morning this is whether or not you would put a limit on the number of migrants that a Labour government would be willing to accept from the continent as part of a returns deal, the returns deal that your party says you want in order to be able to better to confront the problem? Would you put a limit on the number? Well, on limits and controls, first of all, right now, right now, people smugglers are basically half running the asylum system by deciding who comes on these boats. So we've got to crack down on that. In terms of discussions with the EU, there's been a lot of nonsense talked about this in recent days. We're not going to be taking part in an EU-wide scheme involving EU member states, because we're not a member state. But you have said that you would negotiate with individual countries, and I'm asking a clear question. You can say the Tories' claims were nonsense. That's your prerogative. They will dispute that, and you can fight that out amongst ourselves. But I'm asking you a clear question. Would a Labour government put a limit on the number of migrants that you might be willing to accept in negotiations? I'm not sure it will work like that because you're implying as though there is some kind of negotiation about numbers and quotas. What my colleague, uh, the Shadow Home Secretary, has talked about is family reunion, children who may have uh, strong links here in the UK. At the moment, those people who may or may not have a legitimate claim, they are, they are coming on these small boats. Uh, and, you know, that's the kind of thing we're talking about, rather than taking part in some EU-wide But if you have scene. a returns deal, though, do you accept there would have to be some kind of quid pro quo? And our, voters, our, our viewers this morning will hear that you are not saying whether or not you'd put a limit on any potential numbers. I don't think it's going to be an allocation of numbers. We're talking about 
individual cases where a child may have strong family links here. It's not, we'll take this many, you take that many. That's not the kind of negotiation that we want to have. And finally, Koonsberg spoke to Ian Russell, the father of Molly Russell, who took her own life after viewing harmful material online. Ian Russell campaigned for improved internet safety and influenced the passing of the new online safety bill, which attempts to make social media platforms more responsible for their users' well-being. Russell pointed out that 83% of children who see harmful material online did not search for that material. It is instead put in front of them by the platform's algorithms. At the start of this, you were rather a, a lone voice and it's been a, a long journey. What's it been like for you and what's it been like for you as a family? It's been difficult, but it was always going to be difficult because at the heart of this story is the loss of our lovely, adorable Molly. But there have been so many other people who've supported this journey, so many people who really think it's important that the world should be safer for children. If you think of NSPCC research that was commissioned last year, University of Swansea studies showed that three quarters of young people had seen online harms by the time they were 14. And 83% of those, this is the significant thing, 83% of young people who'd seen those online harms didn't go searching for it, it found them. And while the platform's algorithms are feeding harms to our children. We have to do something. That's all for this week. I'm Isabel Hardman and this podcast was produced by Joe Bedell Brill. Don't forget to subscribe to the Coffee House Shots podcast on the iTunes store. And if you enjoyed this podcast, do subscribe to our daily evening blend email. It's a free roundup of all the political news each day and an analysis of what to expect next. Just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash blend. Thanks for listening and do join us again next week.